gentlemen. So if we've not met before, um, quite a few new faces. My name is Johnny, and it's just so great to have you with us this afternoon. Um, as Ian has just stolen my introduction, um, I'll go with it anyway. We are in a study in the book of 1 and 2 Samuel, and this afternoon we are picking up in this really significant point in the story. So if you've got a Bible with you, I'd really encourage you to have it open in front of you. We are in 2 Samuel chapter 5 this afternoon. Leo Tolstoy, the author of War and Peace, wrote a less well-known book called The Confession. And in it, he describes his longing to find the very best life you see, as a young man, he threw himself into all sorts of partying, social cities. He was across St. Petersburg. He was across Moscow. Drink, sex, gambling, whatever sort of experience he could get hold of to, to pleasure himself, he would chase it. You see, that, that didn't work for him. And when that didn't work, he began to focus on becoming as rich as he most possibly could be. And he did this through his writing his vast inheritance, and as well as numerous investments. And then, after that, he decided, no, 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 this is all about honor. This is all about success. So I'd be far better getting more focused on writing. So he, he did that, and he successfully became one of the world's most famous and, and most successful novelists. Then he decided, actually, this is about family. I need to try to provide my family with, with the best life that they could possibly have. You see, to, to everyone looking at Leo's life, they thought, he has it all. He has everything. Yet when Leo was asked one simple question, why do I live? He can answer it. Later in life, after he became a Christian, he said he was inescapably led to the conviction that only faith gives life a meaning. You see, there is a desperation out there for all of us to live the best life that we most possibly can. We search high and low, don't we? We look for all kinds of things to fill our lives with the best possible things. You know, we go on holidays, we try to have nice cars. We try to have big homes. We have lovely food. We pursue relationships. All of this designed to give us the best possible life that we can have. But do you know what? The paradox in life is that we can only find it when we are willing to lose it. You see, we only find it when we do not put our faith in ourselves but we put our faith in our creator, God. Today marks this significant point in the story of 1 and 2 Samuel. We see God's man, David, finally enthroned as king over all the 12 tribes of Israel. And as we journey through today, we're going to look at how he did it, and we're going to get a glimpse of what it looks like. You see, we, this afternoon, we are going to see three things in the passage. First of all, we are going to see that David did not adopt a go-getting mentality, but they waited on God's promises. Secondly, we are going to see that David was not a self-made man, but that he worked by God's empowering presence. And finally, we are going to see that David was not a winner because of his strategic leadership, but that his wins came through God's perfect 
plan. Before we do that, um, let's just pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that every time we come to your word, there's, there's new life that you pour into us. Um, so this afternoon, Lord, we pray that as we come, whether we are distracted this afternoon, whether our head is somewhere else, whether we are coming in thinking, oh, I'm a bit skeptical of this, this is nonsense. Lord, I pray this afternoon that you would reveal yourself as the God who brings true life. Father, I pray this afternoon that you would convict us where we need convicted. Lord, I pray that you would change our hearts. I pray that you would mold us to be more like your son, Jesus. Lord, I pray that your word would fall on, on, on good soil this afternoon. Lord, come and change our hearts this afternoon through your word preached. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let me tell you something um, that I have recently observed, and that is that we live in this instant gratification culture. You see, we want things now, straight away, no waiting about. Now, I love this program, which you probably know of, called Dragon's Den. I absolutely love it. And a few years ago, myself and Lynn, were, my wife, um, were away on holiday, and I was a bit sad. I thought, I am going to enjoy this time. I'm going to sit on the sound linger. I'm going to have iPad in one hand, drink in the other hand, and I am going to watch some episodes of Dragon's Den. Great company, eh? <laughs> we somehow made it through the holiday. It's fine. Um, so I sat there, watched the first episode. Great. I loved it. You then get the little timer, don't you, on YouTube? Five seconds to your next clip. Five seconds. Come on. I want to watch this right now. So this five-second timer goes down, down, down. Great, it's coming, it's coming. We know what's coming. YouTube then hit you with another 30-second advert, don't they? So I've got another 30 seconds to wait. Ugh, painful. So, so painful. I mean, how can they make me wait that long? Don't they know that I need to watch this right this second? No waiting about. You see, we are so used to getting things instantly. This week, I came across this company in London that deliver your groceries to your door 10 minutes after hitting the buy now button. 10 minutes, an almost instant service. What about Amazon and their delivery drones? Has anyone spotted any of those yet? Nope, not me, no, me neither. But this is all designed about giving us this instant service, what we want and getting it to us as quickly as possible. Or maybe you're a bit like me. You get a bit frustrated when you're having to queue in a shop. You get a bit frustrated when your Uber driver is 30 seconds late. Or you get a little bit frustrated when you're waiting for the green man at the traffic lights to change so you can safely cross the road rather than taking a risk with your life. You see, today's instant gratification culture has preached us into being people who are impatient when it comes to waiting. A recent study showed that over 55% of people won't wait on hold for more than one minute. It's a few smirks. Is that you? Certainly it's me. Um, in September last year, the bank HSBC, they actually reported that the number of saving accounts is at a peak low, yet the number of 18 to 24-year-olds that are admitting and investing into quick financial gain schemes is at a peak high. We want instant results, and we want it now. 
You see, we've become incredibly impatient for what we want. And this doesn't only affect our, our daily habits and our life, this also affects our spiritual lives too. You see, culture has molded us into believing that we can have things with a click of a finger. A click of a finger, whatever we want, it'll be here. And if we're being honest, how often do we think the same of God? I've been praying for my friend, but you know, they're just not coming to know Jesus right this second. I've been praying for a new job, but it's just not happening right now. How about this one? We've been praying for a new church building, but it's just not happening quite quickly enough for us. Mm. So often we want to be people that run ahead of God's timing. We want to be leaders before God has refined our character, before he's grown us. You see, we have become spiritually impatient, demanding from God what we want and when we want it. When we really search our hearts, really search our hearts into the depth of our hearts, we so often find that our lives reflect that we're the kings. It's our timing. It's our plans. It's not God's. You see, we are increasingly losing the spiritual discipline of waiting on God. Waiting on God promises patiently. You know, we know that it's what we should do. We know that when we do do it, God brings us everything that he wants to give us in life. But the reality of it is that we are impatient, aren't we? And it's exactly this context of waiting where we pick up the story today. So if you have your Bible with you, um, open up. We're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 5, and we'll start by reading the first five verses, and the, the words will be up on the screen, so you'll be able to track along. So let me read for us. It says, all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, we are your own flesh and blood. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel and you will become their ruler. When all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he became king and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months and Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. So a quick reminder about what's going on here in the, in the bigger story. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, David has been anointed by Samuel to become the king. It's this prophetic promise that one day David will be king over the 12 tribes of Israel. You see, the death of Saul's last son, Ishbosheth, paved the way for David to become the king. And that's exactly what happens. So right at the start of this passage, all the tribes of Israel, all of them, they come together, they acknowledge David as their new ruler. They gather around him and they make this speech declaring three things. Firstly, in verse one, that we are your own flesh and blood. You see, they are acknowledging that David was an Israelite. He is one of them, which is a key requirement to being the king of Israel. Secondly, they say, in the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. They were acknowledging 
that David had the leadership experience to go into this role. And thirdly, and most importantly, they recount the promise from, da from God to David, saying, you, David, will shepherd my people Israel, and you will become their ruler. A divine promise to David. You see, David, in this moment, is being acknowledged. He is being enthroned as the new king of Israel. This was the moment David had been waiting for the fulfillment of the prophetic promise that one day he'd be enthroned as king over Israel. But let's be really clear about this. This did not happen overnight. This wasn't the sort of thing that just happened with a click of the finger and David woke up one morning and was like, right, this is it, today's the day. See, most commentators actually estimate the time between David being anointed in 1 Samuel chapter 16 and the fulfillment in 2 Samuel chapter 5 took 22 years. 22 years of waiting. Wow. Not exactly the instant gratification that we, that we go for these days, is it? I mean, how many of us have prayed for something for 22 years? I'm looking out and a lot of you aren't even 22 yet. <laughs> I mean, the reality is that we so often get discouraged, don't we? We are praying, we're praying, and when God doesn't do what we ask for quickly, what do we do? That's right, we give up. Sometimes we even fall into this temptation to, to run ahead of God's timing, you know, try and manipulate it so actually something happens and, and God just makes a way, but actually behind the scenes, we're being the one that's kind of been manipulating the situation to get our own way. You see, David knew exactly what it meant to wait on God's promises. See, David could have rushed God's timing. He had, he had many chances to end Saul's life. You see, if he had ended Saul's life, he would have been king much quicker. So there was, there was two. So in 1 Samuel 24, David and his 600 um, strong army are sat in this cave hiding. And Saul walks in. What a prime opportunity. Surely 600 versus one, jump him. Get on top of him, kill him. But no, no. It says that David's heart struck him. He didn't do it. Only a couple of chapters later, Saul was being chased by David once again, and he was in this open field, and David snuck in, and he had Saul's spear in his hand, and he's over the top of Saul, thinking this could be the moment. And no, he doesn't do it. You see, if he had done that, sure, he might have sped up the process of becoming king, but David would not have been ready for the task that God had set aside for him. You see, God in this 22 years was preparing David for the task that he had called him. And if David had rushed it, he would not have been ready. And perhaps this afternoon you're, you're sitting here and you're in a season of waiting. You know God has, has something for you. You know God has called you to do something and it's just not happening quickly enough. Frustrating, right? Perhaps this afternoon God has you in a position of waiting for a reason. Maybe he wants to refine you. Maybe he wants to strengthen you. Maybe he wants to prepare you. Let me encourage you this afternoon. Do not rush ahead of God's timing. So we're going to see God in this waiting season was preparing David for the battle. Perhaps God is preparing you. Wait on God's perfect timing.
See, David waited on God's timing, and through his waiting, God led him into what Robert Bergen calls the apex of David's career. You see, this was a really significant moment. David was stepping into and receiving everything that God had for him, 22 years of waiting. But David patiently waited for God's promise to be fulfilled. Verses one to five, David enthroned as king of Israel. So let me ask you today, what is it that you're waiting for? Are you like David waiting patiently? Or are you trying to rush ahead of God's plans for your life? David in Psalm 40 pours out his heart to the Lord in his time of waiting and he says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. David teaches us this afternoon, wait on God. And as we're waiting, cry out to him because he hears you. Cry out to your father. Do you want everything that God has for you in this life? Point one, wait on God's promises. So let's continue reading. So picking up in verse six um, through to 16. So it says, the king and his men marched to Jerusalem to attack the Jebusites who lived there. The Jebusites said to David, you will not get in there. Even the blind and the lame can ward you off. They thought David cannot get in here. Nevertheless, David captured the fortress of Zion, which is the city of David. On that day, David has said, anyone who conquers the Jebusites will have to use the water shaft to reach those lame and blind who are David's enemies. This is why they say the blind and lame will not enter the palace. David took up residence in the fortress and called it the city of David. He built up the area around it from the terraces inward and he became more and more powerful because the Lord God Almighty was with him. Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent envoys to David along with cedar logs and carpenters and stonemasons, and they built a palace for David. Then David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people. After he left Hebron, David took more concubines and wives in Jerusalem, and more sons and daughters were born to him. These are the names of the children born to them there. Shamua, Shaobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ivor, Elisha, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishama, Elida, and Eliphlet. So David, the, the newly enthroned king of Israel, is in his place. And his first act seems a little bit strange, yet it is strategically important. You see, up to this point, Hebron in the territory of Judah had been the capital city, um, the political hub of Judah. But David knew that if he was to be king over all 12 tribes, he couldn't be seen to be favoring Juba. So he set about establishing a more centralized capital for the nation, Jerusalem, a strategically successful move by, God, by David. You see, this decision, though, was not only strategic, but it was also following God's command to Moses. In Exodus chapter 23, when the people of God entered the promised land, God had commanded Joshua to destroy the pagan nations. 
because they would influence Israel to worship idols. So when, when David decided that he was going to take Jerusalem, he wasn't just, it wasn't just a strategic decision, but it was also a decision to obey God's command. Now, taking Jerusalem isn't as easy as just kind of arriving, knocking on the door, walking in and, and, and taking it. You see, Jerusalem was a place very hard to reach and conquer. Think of places like Stirling Castle. Great place, lovely place. It's set on this high point, valleys all around it, um, looking down on who are coming near. You see, the Jebusites were so confident in their geographical position that defending themselves, that, that they, weren't, they weren't worried at all. They were thinking, this is fine. So much so, they began to mock David. Verse six, it says, you will not get in there. Even the blind and lame can ward you off. They didn't even think they needed an army. How wrong they were. You see, David demonstrating his military prowess and ability instructed his men to enter the city through the water shaft, open the gates from the inside and conquer the Jebusites. You see, many times people had tried to um, conquer Jerusalem and they'd failed. So this was a military marvel. David took residence in the city. He renamed it the city of David, a successful first act as king of Israel. So let me ask you this one question, and that is, what was it that made David successful? What was it that made him powerful? Was it his military ability, being able to kind of position his guys in the right place in order to go and attack attack um, Jerusalem, or, or was it strategic insight and implementation of a plan? Oh, oh, I can see if I maybe do this, and then this, and then this, I might get in. Or was it his ability to gather a competent army, an army that could battle like no other army? It was none of those things. None of those things. Verse 10 tells us the source of David's success. And it says this, and he, David, became more and more powerful. Why? Because the Lord God Almighty was with him. Why was David growing in power? Why was his work so successful? It was because David worked by God's empowering presence. You see, David did greater and greater and greater things because God was with him. You're a Christian here today. Take confidence in the fact that David's success wasn't found in his own ability. It wasn't um, found in, in some sort of strategy that he came up with, but it was found in God's empowering presence resting on him. You see, we can come up with all forms of elaborate plans for our lives. I don't know if you're one of those people that have got your life sort of planned out on a sheet of paper. By the age of 30, I'll do this. By 45, I'll do this. 50, I'll do this. See, we can have strategies for our lives. We can have strategies for this church. We can have strategies for our futures. But let me tell you something. To live a life of everything that God has for you, you need to work by God's empowering presence. You need the presence of God with you. Without that, you are nothing. We are nothing. I am nothing. See, Paul, in his first letter to the church in Corinth, wrote to them to remind them in verse 16, 
Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells within you? Good news this afternoon. Great news this afternoon. We can smile, we can clap, we can rejoice because the presence of God is in you. This afternoon, if you are a Christian, you are a temple of his Holy Spirit. God promises to never leave you or forsake you. We have free access to our Father and God. Plead for more of his presence in your lives. We need it, don't we? We need it. You see, David worked by God's empowering presence. And because of this, word was spreading. See, he was becoming more and more powerful, more and more successful. And one of the kings from the surrounding areas heard about David. It was Hiram, the king of Tyre. And, and he really wanted to avoid being an enemy of David. So what he did was he sent a whole load of materials and a whole load of workers to, the, to, um, to David and to Israel. And he said, build a new palace for David. You see, in these days, foreign recognition was, was quite a new development. People wouldn't really do it. But David was being recognized as a powerful and successful king. Why was that? Because the Lord God Almighty was with him. Verse 12, David, this is after he, he was beginning to have success. David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and he had exalted his kingdom. And why, did, why was he doing that? For the sake of his people, Israel. You see, God had established David as king of Israel. He was growing in power. He was growing in success by the empowering presence of God at work in his life. Yet he knew that this wasn't of his own making. And he knew that it wasn't for the sake of himself. You see, David knew that it was the Lord that was establishing him. It was the Lord that was bringing success. And it was for the sake of the people of Israel. This was not about David. This was not about David's glory. You see, when God gives us gifts and abilities, it isn't solely for ourselves. It's not about us. You see, we receive from God so that we can build each other up so that we can equip the saints for, for works of ministry, as it says in Ephesians 4. For example, I am not a musician. Seriously, I am not a musician. Don't ever ask me to stand up here and do what Stu does or what any of these worship leaders do because it would be messy. But I am so, so grateful that by the grace of God, we have got people that can do that. I love singing praise to Jesus. I love gathering as God's people on Sunday and lifting up his name together. I'm so thankful for people that use their gifts to equip us to do that. I'm so thankful for those of you and those of us who serve so faithfully with their God-given gifts. So what is it that God has given you so that you can build up the, build up the, um, the body and equip the saints for works of ministry. See, David understood that his work was empowered by the presence of God was for the sake of people in Israel. Do you want everything God has for you in his life? Firstly, wait on God's promises. Secondly, work by God's empowering presence. 
thirdly and finally, win through God's perfect plan. So let's continue to read in 2 Samuel verse 17 through to 25. It says this, when the Philistines heard that David had been appointed king over Israel, they went up in full force to search him. But David heard about it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out on the valley of Rephaim. So David inquired of the Lord, shall I go and attack the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hands? The Lord answered him, go, for I will surely deliver the Philistines into your hands. So David went to Baal-perazim, and there he defeated them. He said, as waters break out, the Lord has broken out against my enemies before me. So that place was called Baal-perazim. The Philistines abandoned their idols there, and David and his men carried off. Once more, the Philistines came up and spread out in the valley of Rephim. So David inquired of the Lord, and he answered, Do not go straight up, but circle around them and attack them in front of the poplar trees. As soon as you hear the sound of marching and the tops of the poplar trees, move quickly, because that will mean that the Lord has gone out in front of you to strike the Philistine army. So David did as the Lord commanded him, and he struck down the Philistines all the way from Gibeon to Gezer. You see, David's success and David's power was continuing to travel. There was more and more news about this happening. And this really, really aggravated the Philistines. So off they went in large numbers, out in search for David, ready for a battle. And the outcome of this battle was going to be incredibly significant. Because if the Philistines were to overcome David, especially in this early days, it's doubtful whether David would have ever retained the confidence of the whole region that has just been given to him. So this was an important battle. You see, with previous military success fresh in mind, it would have seemed very logical, wouldn't it, for David just to have jumped straight into the battle. You know, come, give me a bit of this. I can take all these people. But no, what does he do? Verse 19, he withdraws to a stronghold and he inquires of the Lord. So he goes to a quiet place and he inquires of the Lord. You see, David was facing this significant moment in this, in, in this reign. But rather than executing his own plans, rather than just jumping in with his own strategies, David sought the Lord for what his plan was. The Lord then promised David victory and they overcame the Philistines and David named the place Baal-perazim, which meant the Lord of breakthrough. David had the Lord fighting for him, whereas the Philistines, as we could see right at the end, they, they abandoned their idols. You see, their false gods could not save them. They couldn't stack up against God. It was David won, the Philistines no. Sorry, I love a sports, love a sports scoreboard. See, it was a win, not through David's own strategic leadership, but it was a win through God's perfect plan. It was not over though, was it? As most good boxing matches, the guy's down, but they come back. The Philistines appear back. What would you do if you were David? Put yourself in that position. You see them coming again. You've just defeated them. They're coming again. What would you do? I mean, I know what I would do. 
and say, I've taken them once, I'll take them again, let's go. But no, no, verse 23, David again stops and he inquires of the Lord. And do you know what? Thankfully he did, because the Lord came back with a completely different strategy this time. You see, David was to, to make this surprise attack, so he was to sneak up behind the rear of the Philistines, but ultimately it was God that was fighting this battle on his behalf. See, God told David to, to listen before you attack, and when you hear the sound of marching in the top of the trees, move quickly, because that will mean that the Lord has gone out in front of you and he has struck down the Philistines for you. You see, this sound given as a gift to David wasn't the sound of human footsteps running away. It was the sound of the Spirit of God winning the battle for him. It was David to the Philistines' nil. A win, not through David and his strategic leadership, but through God's perfect plan. You see, David knew that if he was to win, then he would win through God's plans. And the same is true for us today. However impressive, however logical, however sound your plans may seem, unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers labor in vain. So what does it look like for us to inquire of the Lord? I mean, this is where the success came from, wasn't it? Well, it starts on our knees. Lord, you are my king, I am not. Come, have your way in my life. Come and make my steps clearly known. Do you find yourself this afternoon at a, at a significant point in your life? Perhaps a crossroad moment, you don't know what's next. Maybe you need direction from God. Maybe you need God to speak into your situation. Best place to start on your knees, inquire of the Lord, and as he speaks to you, step out in obedience. You see, David was a king who waited on God's promises. David was a king whose work was empowered by the presence of God. And David was a king who experienced wins that came through God's perfect plan. You see, this book, the, the Bible, it isn't about us. And it's not about David. The purpose of, of this study isn't for us to sit back and think, oh, David, you're amazing. We're not sitting here marveling at David. You know, David has started well. But soon we'll see that his reign isn't all smooth sailing. Fast forward only a few chapters and David makes an incredibly poor decision. You see, he in his sinful ways makes a decision that leaves terrible consequences for long-lasting consequences, long-lasting long consequences of his decisions. You see, David, like all of us in our sinful nature, can't fill that God-shaped hole in our heart. See, Leo Tolstoy tried filling his life with all sorts of things. And it was only when he met Jesus that he discovered what it meant to live his best life. You see, the paradox of life is that we can only find it when you are willing to lose it. So how do you find your best life? It's simple. You die to self. 
you confess that Jesus is all you need, that he is your Lord. And as you confess, Christ comes, he exchanges your dirty rags, he gives you his righteousness, he fills you with his spirit, and you join him in his mission, living a life of faith. You see, David was promised to be the shepherd of Israel, but Jesus, the better David, comes and lays down his life for the sheep. You see, King Jesus came. He lived the perfect life that we couldn't live. He died the cruelest death that we should have faced. And on the third day, he rose victorious over sin and death so that we can join him and that we can live this best life in Christ. I loved singing in Christ alone earlier. Just sums this up so beautifully. So what does it mean to live our best life? Well, Paul sums it up perfectly in Galatians 2, chapter 2, when he says this, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus and find life in fullness. As the band come up, let's, let's pray. And I'll invite Ian up. Father God, I thank you for who you are. Father, I thank you that you are the great shepherd. Lord, I thank you that when we wait on you, that you bring us our best. Lord, I thank you that your presence empowers us. Father, I thank you that your ways are so great. Lord, I pray this afternoon that we would get a glimpse into what that means for each of us. Lord, what it would mean to, to wait on you, to wait on your perfect time. And Lord, we say that we are your people. Lord, we say that you are king, that you are king of our lives, that you have ultimate reign, that you have authority over us. Lord, we humble ourselves this afternoon. We look to you. We say, take our lives and do whatever you may want to do with them. Lord, we are your people. Lord, we thank you for the cross. We thank you that you have made a way for us to know you. Lord, give us great hope. Give us great faith as we worship you now. Come, Holy Spirit.